so in today's boxes, we had uh, protein, which I think there were chicken patties. We had cookies, we had bread, we had cheese, we had butter, uh, we had canned fruits. Stacy Nicholas is a director at a nonprofit in Northeast Missouri, Douglas Community Services. Lately, her focus has been on running a food pantry. On a given day, we see between 80 and 100 families. We're open three days a week, so somewhere between 300 and 350 families a week. Nicholas says normally about half the folks who visit the pantry are under 18 years old or over 65, ages where it would be harder to provide for yourself. But where Nicholas is, the pandemic has changed who's coming to the pantry. In a given month, we see between 40 and 50% of our clients are first-time users. We see a lot more families than we used to, people with children, because they just don't have the funding to provide the basic necessities for the entire month. Hunger was a problem in rural Missouri before March 2020. But it's an even bigger problem now, and not just in Missouri. Welcome to Skim This. This week, we're going to be looking at the relief bill that's finally working its way through Congress, and why it's likely to be a drop in the bucket for Americans struggling to put food on their tables. We'll be taking a look at how food insecurity and threats to public transit funding could become two of many lasting scars of COVID that linger long after people start getting vaccinated. But first, as Pfizer's COVID vaccine rolls out across the U.S., you might be wondering, how is it actually going to get, well, everywhere? Also, can my kids get it? What about if I have allergies? What if I'm pregnant? We're taking your COVID vaccine questions and getting some answers. All right, let's do it. This week, there were a lot of cheers as the first people in the United States receive the Pfizer COVID-19 vaccine. And by the end of this week, the FDA is expected to approve the second COVID-19 vaccine from the biotech company Moderna. It is at the beginning of the end of the pandemic, the first COVID vaccinations administered in the U.S. In unprecedented speed, science won. All of this talk about vaccines means you probably have some questions. So we called up an expert to skim the answers. I would definitely line up for one of the mRNA vaccines when it becomes available. Meet Dr. Julie Fisher. She's an associate research professor at Georgetown. She knows a thing or two about vaccines. And she told us a lot of people have been calling her with the same question. Are they safe? So first things first. The short answer is yes. And there's data to back it up. I personally think that the regulatory process has been thorough that the experts have been very diligent in their job, and I, I am trusting in the process. The FDA found no specific safety concerns with either vaccine, and it found that both vaccines were equally effective for people of different ages, races, genders, and ethnicities. So that's what the vaccine trials found. But if you're still concerned that the vaccine's speedy development means the pharmaceutical companies or the FDA skipped a couple steps, Fisher says don't be because scientists have been studying coronavirus vaccines for viruses like SARS for years. So the COVID-19 vaccine research picked up where other vaccines left off. That speed is built on a decade of careful research. And so while it looks like unbelievably fast progress, it's incredible technical progress 
based on really painstaking investigation over a matter of years by researchers who have really dedicated themselves to this very thing. Moving on, let's talk about how and when you'll actually be getting vaccinated. Starting with, can I get it right now? First in line are the people who need it most, frontline healthcare workers, along with people in nursing homes. So if that's not you, you're probably going to be waiting around for a couple of months. Government officials are saying spring or early summer. So... I wouldn't call your doctor this week. Next question. When it's my turn to get a vaccine, can I choose which one I get? Right now, our ability to pick and choose among the vaccines is really, really limited. And that's because there are limited stocks of the Pfizer vaccine, which has been approved first. There are expected to be fewer doses available than there is demand for the next several months. So the ability of individual consumers to choose the vaccine that they prefer most is going to be limited. But between the Moderna and Pfizer vaccines, there aren't too many differences anyways. They share the same core technology. The main difference really comes down to temperature. Both the vaccines are found to be very effective. The major difference between them is the stability of the two vaccines. The way it's formulated, the Moderna vaccine can be moved under very cold conditions, but conditions that are found more frequently in hospitals and healthcare centers. The Pfizer uh, vaccine has to be moved at minus 70 Celsius or below, which is a, an extra cold freezer, an ultra cold freezer. So depending on your location and whether your doctor or local hospital has an ultra cold freezer, you may only have access to one or the other. But regardless of which shot you end up getting, you might be wondering about side effects. Dr. Fisher told us some have been reported. Most of the side effects that have been reported are either local, that is like pain at the injection site, and that appears to be the most common one. And there are some systemic effects like fever and headache and fatigue that have occurred in some people. Those are mostly signs that the immune system is really active and is working and mounting a response. Meaning mild discomfort may be common, but that's really your body actually creating its response against the virus. Personally, what I say to people at this point is they should be realistic. There are side effects. They may feel discomfort and they may have fever, pain and other symptoms that we associate with like having a mild version of uh, like influenza-like illness is what we call it. For most people, those symptoms probably aren't an issue, but there are a few reasons you may want to talk to your doctor before getting immunized. The first is if you've had severe allergic reactions to vaccines in the past. Right now, the CDC does say those people can get immunized, but they should discuss the risks with their doctor and stick around in the doctor's office afterwards in case they do have a reaction. Certainly people who have a history of severe allergies need to talk to their healthcare providers about whether these are the best vaccines for them. The second is if you're pregnant or trying to become pregnant. The vaccine trials for Moderna and Pfizer didn't include pregnant individuals. So it's still TBD whether the vaccine is safe if you're expecting. Right now, there's just not a lot of good data. And because there's not a lot of good data, those vaccines are not being advised for use in either pregnant women or pediatric populations, so not in children or pregnant women. And as a reminder, these vaccines haven't been approved for children 16 and under because the clinical trials didn't include kids. So for right now, until there is more info, don't break out the multicolored band-aids. Before we go, let's talk about one other question you might be thinking for once you've already been vaccinated. Can I finally stop wearing this mask? 
Unfortunately, having the vaccine doesn't mean that we can quit taking precautions. We do not know yet if these vaccines only prevent severe illness or if they also prevent people from transmitting the virus to others. That data does take a little longer to collect. And until we know for sure, we're going to have to behave as if people who are vaccinated are themselves protected, but might not be prevented from transmitting virus to others if they're exposed. So for the short term, we're going to have to keep disciplined, resist fatigue, and work together as the vaccine is rolled out to make sure that people are protected until the whole population can be vaccinated enough that we really do have herd immunity and can go back to uh, the before times. So in other words, don't throw away your mask collection just yet. For all your other COVID-19 vaccine questions and to keep up to date with the vaccine rollout, subscribe to our daily newsletter at theskim.com. Speaking of arriving soon, we're a few days out from Christmas. If you're like us, you probably have some last-minute shopping to do. But before you hit add to cart and wait for that two-day shipping to kick in, we've got some bad news. It turns out everyone else had the same idea. A number of reports have come out saying that the U.S. Postal Service is pretty backed up this holiday season. Even private carriers like UPS and FedEx have had to alter consumer expectations this year. They're limiting the number of packages they're picking up to avoid a backlog. What does that mean for you? Expect some delays between when you hit checkout and when you get that email with a tracking number. If you're really in a pinch and are willing to pay extra, you should still check the fine print on when it says your package will actually arrive to avoid selecting an overnight shipping option that ends up taking over a week. So what's causing all these delays? You can thank our online shopping habit for that, because according to one survey, e-commerce orders this year increased by as much as 20%, which is a lot of extra Christmas deliveries. And when you and your neighbor and your neighbor's neighbor are all ordering the new AirPods at the same time, that can overwhelm carriers and cause delays. Not to mention, UPS and FedEx are also working on delivering something else that's pretty crucial right now. Millions of doses of the COVID-19 vaccine. How are they dealing with that plus an overwhelming number of holiday gifts? We spoke to Ramona Hood, the president and CEO of FedEx Custom Critical, and she said their strategy is to divide and conquer. I think it's important for consumers to understand that they are two different networks. And so we're able to leverage the capabilities of the FedEx Express Network to support the vaccine shipments and prioritize them through that way. And then you have FedEx Ground, which is the ground network that's focused on e-commerce. And so we can look at that business separately and operate it through two different networks. FedEx told us it's important to remember that this is their busiest holiday season ever. And that was before they had to ship out the vaccine. So remember, the reason grandma's present might be late this year is probably more of a result of all of us shopping from our couches. Hey guys, I want to tell you about another podcast I think you'd love from Food 52's new podcast network. On Play Me a Recipe, you'll head into the kitchen with some of your favorite Food 52 cooks. They'll measure, chop, stir, and saute their way through a recipe and you'll be right there with them every step of the way. For the holiday season, they're passing the spatula to eight special guest hosts, including Pan Bang cookie inventor Sarah Kiefer and chef and TV personality Carla Hall. 
so they can share the tips, tricks, and stories behind their beloved family recipes. Subscribe wherever you listen. Got a minute? By now you probably know that Pfizer's COVID vaccine needs to be transported at very low temperatures. To be precise, at negative 94 degrees Fahrenheit. And since that's colder than regular home freezers, which usually hover at around zero degrees Fahrenheit, the companies moving the vaccine around the U.S. need to call in a little help. From dry ice, dry ice, ultra cold dry ice. You need dry ice. Dry ice, huh? What is it and why is it the hottest commodity in town? Here's the answer in 60 seconds. Most matter exists in three states, liquid, gas, and solid. For instance, H2O can exist as water, steam, or ice. But dry ice isn't the solid form of water. It's the solid form of CO2, carbon dioxide, which we exhale and that can be poisonous in high concentrations. More on that later. Dry ice is generally made in special factories and formed into blocks or pellets at negative 109 degrees Fahrenheit, a temp it can hold for a few days which makes it useful in transporting things like dairy products or in the entertainment industry for fog machines as it melts into gas. Vaccine-related demand for dry ice is causing manufacturers to struggle to make enough, and it's also causing issues in the skies. Airplanes normally can't carry much dry ice on board since leaking carbon dioxide gas could asphyxiate pilots and crew. United Airlines recently got permission to carry extra dry ice, but with any luck, pilots won't need to stress out about dry ice forever. Moderna's COVID vaccine can be stored just fine in regular freezers, meaning dry ice can go back to chilling Wisconsin cheese cultures and spookifying high school theater productions before long. How'd we do? Want us to skim a burning question from the news on an upcoming episode? Send us an idea to audio at theskim.com. This podcast is free, and we intend to keep it that way. But to make sure we keep the lights and the mic on, we want to make sure we're producing the best possible content for you. And no, this isn't an ad. Instead, to help us keep providing you with the best and most relevant content, we'd love if you gave us some feedback about the show and told us a little bit about yourself. If you can spare five minutes to answer a few multiple choice questions, we'd really appreciate it. To do that, head to theskim.com slash pod survey. That's the skim with two m's.com forward slash pod survey. A few minutes of your time will help us give you hours and hours of the content you want in 2021 and beyond. Thanks. Congress is cramming. It's about time, right? Congress passed its last coronavirus relief bill back in the spring. And since then, we've been burned enough times to know not to put too much faith in promises from leaders in the House and Senate that a new bill is just around the corner. But this time, they're up against a deadline. The U.S. government will shut down Friday at midnight if Congress can't pass a new funding bill. And next week, on the day after Christmas, some special unemployment programs that were enacted back in March are set to expire. Happy holidays, right? That includes provisions allowing freelancers and independent contractors to receive unemployment assistance, along with people who had to stay home to care for children whose schools were closed because of COVID. The hope is, with these deadlines looming, Congress can finally resolve its differences. We've been tracking this all week, and it looks like a deal could get done. It might even include another round of stimulus checks. 
But even if Congress can get something done, we're so close to the original deadline that many state governments are already reportedly programmed to cut unemployment benefits after next week. So millions of people could still end up without any income during the last few weeks of 2020. And any deal Congress does make will still be temporary, just like the last one, meaning there are a lot of serious issues the bill can't or won't solve. First, let's talk about hunger. Northeast Missouri is very rural, so we hit the farm crisis as well as the major city that we are in is Hannibal, Missouri, which is very tourism and service oriented. And a lot of the industries there were hit by the pandemic economic issue. So between the two, we got pinched. That's Stacy Nicholas, a nonprofit director at Douglas Community Services in Missouri. She's trying to figure out how her food pantry can provide for the number of people coming through the doors. Often in rural America, hunger is hidden. Though hunger was never exclusively a rural problem, and the pandemic has made it worse across the country. Pre-pandemic, about 36 million Americans lived in households determined by the federal government to be food insecure. That's Joel Berg, CEO of the nonprofit group Hunger Free America. Since the pandemic, by best estimates, that number is over 50 million Americans. The reason Berg knows this? Hunger Free America has been keeping tabs on the uptick in SNAP benefits, the new name for food stamps. SNAP is a federal government program that gives a kind of coupon to Americans with little to no income so they can buy food. The federal government normally provides monthly updates on how many people are receiving SNAP, but it hasn't provided any new updates since April. Instead, Hunger Free America went through the websites of 33 states, which have kept tracking and publishing their own numbers on a monthly basis. In California alone, just from March through July alone, the SNAP caseload increased from 4 million to 4.6 million, a 15% increase. And that official increase in hunger statistics could be masking an even bigger hunger problem since Berg told us SNAP isn't easy to enroll in. Applying for SNAP in most places is far more difficult than paying your taxes. Plus, Nicholas says, for some people, enrollment is even harder because of the pandemic. I'm a big supporter of SNAP. My struggle is my 80-year-old food clients cannot just go online and sign up for SNAP. My people who are recently unemployed may have previously gone to the library to use their computers to sign up for SNAP, but the library is also closed. So a lot more people aren't earning enough to eat, and they're leaning heavily on food assistance like SNAP plus food pantries as a short-term solution. At no point do I think the food pantry at Douglas Community Services is going to solve the issue of hunger. If this just doesn't match up with the headlines we've been seeing lately, record highs for the stock market, or some people who were furloughed earlier this year getting their jobs back, there might be a reason for that. Because economically, Americans could be headed in opposite directions, with those making over $60,000 a year bouncing back, while... People who are at the lowest end of the economic ladder to begin with are the most likely to still be unemployed. They're the least likely to get any sort of corporate welfare bailout. With lower-paying jobs not coming back, more people are relying on food assistance programs like SNAP. SNAP is a vital lifeline, and it can respond to issues like this. But Berg says local and state governments are running out of money for SNAP and other programs. They really need a cash injection from the federal government or people will fall through the cracks. 
And if we don't get more very large aid very soon, we could see the largest sort of mass starvation in America since the Great Depression of the 1930s. This week, Congress finally arrived at a relief bill. It still needs to pass the House and the Senate, but it's proposing a total of $908 billion in aid, including $31 billion in food assistance and a 15% increase in funding for SNAP. But... I'm very concerned that this package expires after four months. Even if miraculously, you know, much of the country is immunized in the, in the next few months, the economic fallout will probably last years. Every major other problem in America we have is worsened when we have a major hunger crisis. It's going to make it harder for workers to get back to work because hungry workers can't work as effectively. It's also going to make education harder to work because hungry kids can't learn. And so people look at hunger in America and say, oh, people aren't starving to death like North Korea or Somalia or Honduras. And they say, no big deal. Well, the truth is that tens of millions of Americans who can't afford enough food are suffering in very significant ways, physically, emotionally, economically. But remember, you have more options than just waiting for the government to approve a relief bill. If you or someone you know needs help, we've put some resources in our show notes, along with how to volunteer or donate near you. And Berg says picking up the phone can help too. Contact your elected officials, particularly if you're living in a state with, you know, senators and congresspeople who've been opposing this to tell them immediately pass uh, food aid. That brings us to the second thing to possibly get some short-term relief from Congress, public transportation funding. If that sounds like a pretty mundane problem compared to hunger, you're right. It's not technically life and death. But when the future of America's cities depends on lots of people being able to get around easily, the trends we've been witnessing lately are really bad news. Transit agencies have been doubly hit by both the pandemic, which massively reduced ridership, often more than 90% in many cities, as well as a consistent problem of underfunding of public transit across the country, which is kind of an annual headache. That's Sarah Kaufman, Associate Director of NYU's Rudin Center for Transportation. In a lot of places, service cuts mean if you don't have a car and can't pay for an Uber, you'll end up waiting longer to get across town by public transit, if you can get where you're going at all. We are going to see a major reduction in service, and that's going to affect our frontline workers the most. That's healthcare workers, food preparation workers, package sorters, daycare teachers. These populations, the ones that Americans rely on, probably the most right now, are going to be unable to travel to work. Without our lower income workers, people who do everything from stocking shelves to cleaning up a building, without this population, the rest of our cities cannot function. Transportation agencies are already low on funding, but it's so bad this time that some of the country's biggest public transit systems, New York, Chicago, and Boston, to name a few, might have to reduce the services they offer by a lot or even get rid of some services altogether. Kaufman says what we're seeing right now with public transportation could be the beginning of what's called a death spiral. 
there are fewer riders, which results in less funding, which results in less service. People don't want to use transit if it's not reliable or available. And then the reduced number of riders leads to a further reduction of funding. So it's this endless cycle of events. This is where the federal government could swoop in and save the day. The relief bill allocates $45 billion for transport, about $15 billion of which is going to public transit. That amount could buy buses, subways, commuter trains, and even ferries some temporary breathing room in their budgets. But Kaufman says it's probably not enough. It's about half of what the industry needs. And in the meantime, that downward spiral that can really hurt public transit systems has already begun. Take Atlanta, which, according to the city's paper, had 110 bus routes before the pandemic. Around 70 of them have apparently been suspended since the spring. And that could become permanent because the city doesn't know if it can afford to bring them back. It's not really possible to reduce the funding right now and then bring it back, say, in six months when when people are riding fully again. There are expenses that transit agencies have, regardless of whether the train is turned on or off, basically. The trains need to be maintained. The employees have contracts that need to be paid out. So to keep our public transit systems running for the long term, we have to keep them running short term, too. And Kaufman told us this is an issue that goes way beyond major cities. Servicing public transit is not just a New York or Chicago, D.C. or L.A. issue. This is a nationwide issue. If you take, for example, the New York MTA, the MTA buys parts and services from about 17 different states across the United States, states that have nothing to do with New York City. So jobs in those places will be affected. Until there's enough funding to end this death spiral, people in cities will be facing a squeeze. People who can't use transit um, when it's not available are either just driving in their personal vehicles or they're taking taxis or Uber or Lyft or having a friend drive them. These are not long-term solutions. A lot of Americans go into debt trying to provide transportation for their households. We know Uber's surge pricing can burn a hole in our wallets. Owning a vehicle is also expensive. Americans have been borrowing for decades to buy cars, with loan sizes that have ballooned since the financial crisis in 2009. So buying or renting a car if public transportation is no longer an option isn't realistic for everyone. And that's not the only consequence if cars replace buses on city streets. So we would also see a huge reduction in air quality in cities. We would see added smog, added pollution from vehicles. Combine that pollution with the traffic caused by having more cars on the streets or longer waits at subway stations, and the vibrant energy of America's cities could dim, even if the lights technically stay on. So what's the skim? Legislators have spent months bickering over what to include in another COVID relief bill. And while it looks like certain key programs could get a little more money from Congress to tide them over for a few months, we're not out of the woods. Hunger and public transit are two areas with massive budget shortfalls that could have huge long-term implications for the economy, the environment, and our quality of life. And these are just two examples of many, many programs that Americans rely on, whose fate is now in Congress's hands. Finally, for a little cheer, 
What better way to kick off the week of Christmas than with a Christmas star? Yep, that's a thing. And it's hitting a sky near you on Monday, December 21st. The Christmas star is actually made up of the planets Saturn and Jupiter, so it's not technically a star. The two planets rendezvous every few decades, but this will be the first time in almost 800 years that they'll be this close and visible from Earth. It's a phenomenon known as a Great Conjunction. Even though they'll actually be 400 million miles apart, to us Earthlings, Saturn and Jupiter will appear just a tenth of a degree apart. And being that cozy means they'll appear brighter than any other stars around them. Even though it's also happening on winter solstice, the longest night of the year, the Christmas star won't be partying into the night. Both planets will be turning in early and setting shortly after sunset. Experts say the best time to view this once-in-a-lifetime event is to look southwest closer to the horizon within the first hour that the sun begins to set in your location. Like if you're in Chicago and the sun will start setting at 4.23 p.m., you might want to close out the last hour or so of your workday outdoors. So plan to put your coat on, maybe pour some wine into a travel mug, and toast the evening by stargazing like it's the year 1226. Thanks for listening to Skim This. This podcast was skimmed by Alex Carr and Luke Vargas, with additional help from Peter Bonaventure and Kira Long. And I'm your host, Justine Davey. We'll be back in your feed again next week. For more Skim and to sign up for our daily newsletter, head on over to theskim.com. 